0: Hello, and welcome to Psychotherapy. The podcast you're about to hear is my most vulnerable podcast, in the sense that I am filtering the least amount of what really happened as possible. Now, in general, I try not to filter. But we are humans, and I have subject to the same conditions that every other human is. And sometimes I think I unconsciously remove aspects that would not be crucial, but may paint myself in a light that is easier to digest. In this one, I don't do that. Now, there is a point in the podcast where I'm going to come back to a preface, basically from where I am now, I'm going to talk to you again from here, and then we'll continue with the podcast that was previously recorded. Now, the reason I'm going to stop you then is because I need to explain where I was right before I recorded that second section. This is Psychotherapy with Jet Dunlap, episode number nine. Enjoy. I remember I was in this classroom in high school, and there were bungalows, because uh, during the big Northridge quake, the school that I was going to go to, the high school I was going to go to, uh, was pretty much destroyed. And so, kind of out of the ashes, we were the first graduating class that started at the new campus and the new campus was a seminary. Seminary, for those of you who don't know, is a place where basically you're trained to be a priest. So we went to school at this old mission in Mission Hills. The school was Alamany. We started right after the Northridge earthquake that had destroyed the last campus. So I was in a bungalow. I was coming towards the end of my high school career, so I was probably about a junior, and uh, I remember this question. It is I I sure hope they don't ask kids this today. I don't know if it helps. Maybe it's just me. But where will you be in five years? Where will you be in 10 years? And where will you be in 20 years? I'm 20 years in the future from that. If you had told me that in 1997, I would be sitting in a 36-foot RV on some acreage in the hills, doing what I do now, I think I would have been so depressed (laughs) that I... That I don't know what would have motivated me to continue in my drive towards the material wants that were put into my life by my parents, mostly my father, and I made mention of it before. But my dad saw rich and wealthy people as a different class of human and made very clear to us that those, that class, was better than us. And that was deemed by their. I mean, not anything they did. It was, it was there before they were born, which is pretty funny because his father, a man he barely knew, my last namesake, was a guy who was very wealthy and self-made, for the most part, a lawyer, a very successful lawyer in Los Angeles. But he was not really a father to my dad. He kind of just floated in and out of his life. The man was married many times, so maybe that's where my dad's view came from. But the concept of wealth... And the striving toward it was something that was so ingrained in me by kind of the opposite, you know, it was was that uh, reverse psychology in the sense that he made me feel so much like I could never be them that I was going to prove the opposite. And that's what I did when I left high school. I was in high school and I got as many jobs as I could, did as much work as I could. So how did I get here? That is... A question that could not be answered in the next, you know, five to ten minutes of this podcast. And uh, is it worth listening to? I don't know. Maybe. Here's the short version. I left my parents' house at around 18 years old, and I worked my tail off. If you meet me, you'll see I have no tail. So, quite literally, you know, my tail is gone. Um, Terrible joke. Not terrible. I mean, terrible joke would be something. I'm not going to go into that, but not a great joke. I worked very hard, three jobs, and I told you before, I made it in corporate America in technology sales, and uh, was making six figures by the time I basically left, and that was on my 30th birthday, and that will be 10 years ago this week. And so for the last 10 years, what I've done is, I've done what most people do, I guess today, in college. I didn't have that college experience, I went to junior college in a night school situation, so... You know, that took me a long time, and that is not college in the way that many of you who went to a four-year college got to experience. That whole camaraderie, that whole collegiate atmosphere, it doesn't exist. You're going to this place to get the units, to get the degree, to, you know, satisfy some kind of requirement, some kind of ticket that you have to uh, play the game of work, and that, that ethic was installed in me by my mother. Uh, I am the least educated member of my entire extended family. That means of my 16 um, cousins, uh, to which I am the oldest, the ones who are of college age, all have degrees from Berkeley, um, Santa Cruz, University of San Francisco. I mean, just you name it. A lot of them are from Berkeley. And... So I'm kind of the black sheep. You know, you always hear these stories. I was the first one in my family to graduate from college. Well, I'm, I'm the first one who didn't go to that kind of a college. It wasn't in the cards for me, my dyslexia. So in my 30s, I kind of had an extended period of trying to figure myself out. Now, that shouldn't take 10 years. I mean, for some, it takes a lifetime. For some, maybe never. Or they do it quickly. But in my case, it's taken 10 years. And it's not... That I didn't work. I explored acting. Well, why not just go into it? I explored acting. I explored uh, owning my own business, being a producer. Uh, I explored talent management. Um, oh, gosh. I explored construction. Just about every job I ever thought, hey, what would that be like? I, I, uh, I tried. But in the time, in that period, there were a lot of things that happened that were a result of this. This reflection time that not everyone gets. I got to know my wife, which was kind of cool. Not kind of cool. It was incredible. Uh, I didn't know I didn't know her. I didn't think about that. I didn't know I didn't know my wife. When I was working in the corporate world, I would see her at night, and maybe I'd kiss her goodbye. I did every time, actually, so not maybe, before I'd go to work, but that was it. And when I went out, I went out with my work friends. And if she came, great, but if she didn't, great. I have gotten to know her over the last 10 years, and she has truly become my best friend. It's funny because the way I was raised saying that sounds a little lame, but I, you know, I feel it. She is my best friend. And so that was tremendous. But in the exploration of my life, was I able to kind of take a backseat and figure out the best me, the me that would take me into the future, the me that would give me that all-important purpose in life, which is what I have strived for since I remember having a conscious thought. I'm one of those kids was not been a kid for a long time but I was one of those kids who knew what he wanted to do and always believed he was put on this planet for a purpose That has caused me more pain than it has ever caused me pleasure Because if you feel like you were put on this planet to do something and you're not doing it you feel like you're failing But more than that it feels like you are out of sync with your existence and it makes you feel like you are violating the gift of life. And for a guy who's depressed, who has substance abuse problems, that was really difficult. Maybe thank God for ADD. I'm not able to focus on it all the time. But uh, as I come to the close of my 30s, and I'm sure there's some people who are thinking, is this too personal? Is this relatable? If you're not coming to the close of a decade, then, you know, are you going to understand this? And my answer to that is absolutely. Because you don't have to be at the end of of a decade of your life to have similar feelings. And I stand by the fact that I believe the people who are supposed to listen to this are hearing this. What I have discovered in the last part of the last part of my 30s, well, has been pretty interesting. And all of it came out of tragedy. As I've told you before, I lost my mind through um, delirium three years ago. And that was being hospitalized for not knowing where I was, who I was, or what I was doing. The recovery of which was three months of torture and a year of flashbacks and a lot of relearning. Then deaths of some of my friends. And then most recently, death of my mentor and closest friend, my grandfather. A man who was very much a father to me. And definitely what shaped my personality and who I am today. The good parts, (laughs) I should specify. But through all that pain, I've learned some stuff about who I really am intended to be. Now, even that's tough to say because I was pretty sure I knew exactly what I was supposed to be when I was 8. And very much so when I was 12. When I saw Jurassic Park, the movie, in the theater, I said, this is what I have to do. Not be a dinosaur wrangler, maybe. But (laughs) that's not possible. The next best thing was being in film and television. And I pursued that for 20 years in earnest. In the last part of my 30s, and it was said most aptly by my cousin, Alexandra, she said, I think you're a healer. She had just watched the interview that I had done that is the reason you're hearing me now, that was the catalyst for this podcast. And that interview explored my difficulties in life, and it resonated with some people, and that motivated me to do this. A healer. Now, I can't go out and tell people that, right? Not in today's climate. I can't go out there and say I'm a healer. They'll look at me like, what are you talking about? Do you work, a you a paramedic? I think that right now I can't define who I am or what I am. And why does this matter to you? I'll tell you. I think that the human condition resonates with all of us. And I can speak most clearly about my situation and not speak in hyperbole and, you know, kind of these concepts that you've heard before. So me as a healer, I feel like a phony saying that right now. Have I helped people at their worst moments in life? Oh, yeah. I mean, since I was a child. My first girlfriend tried to kill herself a number of times because of a horrible thing that happened in her past. And uh, I was there. I mean, I was there to help. And she's great now. Has an amazing life. But that was when I was a kid. Have situations like that occurred in my life more than then? (laughs) Depressed people who are on their last leg are drawn to me. I think that's one of the things, too, that is interesting about how things come to you with the purpose of what your mission is. If this is a video game or the matrix, then we have a thing we need to exercise that can only be experienced in the human form. And mine is probably helping people. I always wanted to be a big time film director or a movie star. and Maybe those things will happen. But right now, my ability and what I feel most is that I need to help people. And I'm just talking. I'm just being fed this information and I'm giving it to you. And whatever it means to you is personal. And I'm not only hoping, I feel that this will get to you. Maybe you're not the only one. And maybe when you hear this, you'll know you're not alone. So what do I do now as I close out my 30s? First off, the extreme depression that I had, not to mince words. Going into this period was just overwhelming, especially before my grandfather died. And I was just thinking I was pretty, I was having a hard time when I was going towards my 30s. When I was turning 30, I was kind of in the same place. I mean, in depressed anticipation, who I am was very different. And here I am much older. And I'm not good at saying I lived this life. And there's a value to that. I'm always looking forward. I stay moment focused a lot more than I used to, but I'm always looking forward. So what do I do going forward? For the first time, I think it's being picked for me. I think that I am supposed to be talking to you. I think you need to hear that you're not the only person who's worried about what's next. And I think I can advise you in this. I did not get to understand what it is I was supposed to do until I finally asked the question. And I'll tell you how that happened. My grandfather was the center of my universe. As I mentioned in the last podcast. He was the voice in my head at my worst times, helping me make that better. And the voice in my head at my best times. I knew he was going to die, but that didn't make it easier. I had believed since I lost my mind that there was nothing. After this. Atheism, I guess. we become dirt. And that's fine. It's a pretty great planet. It could use some soil. <laughs> but I was pretty sad about that. I grew up Catholic, and then I quickly became very spiritual. The Power of Now is a huge book in my life. Tolle, big shout out. Um, and... uh so it went from Catholicism to spirituality for a long time. But then when I got sober, I didn't really see any light at the end of the tunnel for six years. I, I felt like I had paid at the altar of, you know, the universe and thought, hey, you know what? I'm giving up alcohol. I'm I'm staying the path and, and nothing really came my way. And so I got discouraged. And then when I lost my mind, when I was in the hospital three years ago, I didn't see anything when I was falling out of myself when i was near death I, I didn't i didn't feel or see anything and who knows how close i was to death in actuality but so i came out of that and i said okay well this is it so i better make the best of it and that helped i got in great shape you know three years <laughs> it didn't happen overnight it took three years but i got in a lot better shape i cleaned myself up i got sober again and it has been the best sobriety i've ever had because it's very empowered and But I was very frightened that my grandfather was going nowhere. I mean, after he died. And so when he passed, I uh, went out of town. I went to the mountains for my brother's birthday, right after my grandfather passed. I actually got to say goodbye to him the day before he died, and he told me he was proud of me. Now, he said he was proud of everyone that was able to see him. I, I think it would be a real monster who on their deathbed said, I'm not proud of you. And he was no monster. He was a great man. But right after he died, I went up to the mountains, a very spiritual place up in the Alabama Hills, high desert, California. And I was going to bed one night in my tent. And I said, Pow, that was his name, tell me where you are. Give me a sign. Show me what happens after this, because I'm scared. I need to know. So as I mentioned in the intro to this podcast, I was going to take a pause about midway through. Here's why. The part that I just left off at was, I'm about to tell you about what really happened to me in the wake of my grandfather's passing. But what you just heard was me pausing the recorder, standing up, walking around, and truly contemplating whether or not I should say it, even though it's the truth. I think all of us have truths that are so surreal that not only does our brain relegate it to a fantasy that you just don't speak of, but we don't want to talk about it to people. So here I am staring down the barrel of a microphone speaking something that I know may be judged as a little bit wacky. What I decided to do when I sat back down and pressed the record button was to maintain the agreement I had with you when I first started, which was full disclosure. As a preface, I am simply saying that the next part was very difficult for me to go through and to tell you. But I decided that being honest with you was what I was meant to do. So here it is, the second part of this podcast, what happened to me directly after my grandfather died. Enjoy. What could I say to you now that would make you understand what transpired next? Here's a short version. Save the long version for another day. I came home, and my wife and I had been talking on the drive home. This was the day after I asked that question. We're talking about how when I was younger, I used to think that life was about taking pictures. Even when I was with my first girlfriend, the one I talked about earlier, when I was on Splash Mountain or I was having a great moment in my life, I would like pose for the camera in the sky. You know, basically like at the end of your life, you get to see all these books of your of your finest moments. So I had asked my grandfather for this sign. And later on that day, I was looking through some of my I was looking for my I think it was my social security card or something like that in a safe somewhere. And uh, I keep journals and a journal flopped out onto the ground and it was upside down. So face down. Uh, It had opened and the page that I grabbed it from, for whatever reason, not thinking about anything that had transpired the night before asking my grandfather, but I picked it up where the spine was and I flipped it over. I have a copy of this too, so you, you can see it at some point. It was three or four pages of text from a me, a me, I was from a me, no, it was from me to me now, not intentionally. But it was right after my grandmother had died, my father's mother, who was very much a part of my life, and she died when I was 19. And what the journal entry said is, That that day I'd gone to see my grandmother at the same cemetery that my grandfather ended up getting buried at, which was totally by coincidence. My grandfather wanted to be cremated Uh, after he passed. My grandmother wanted to be next to him internally, so she had him be buried. He was buried last minute at the same uh, burial ground where my grandmother was in the San Fernando Valley. He's from L.A. It was a whole thing. It was very weird that he was there. So this journal entry opens up and I see it says, I know that after we die, we don't die. We take all the pictures that we had, and we get to look at them. And I know that I am with my grandmother right now. I will be with her when I'm done with this life. And that I know that this is a journey. There's a lot more to it. This isn't a movie, so I don't have a lot of ways of making it as significant as it was. But basically, it was a transcription of the conversation I had had with my grandmother, and it was a direct answer to what what I had asked my grandfather the night before. You can call it what you want. I call it beyond coincidence for those skeptics. I don't call it luck. I don't know if it's a blessing. But when I read those pages, I felt something that I never felt in the 18 years that I was a practicing Catholic in church. And I was an altar boy for seven years. Altar boy of the year in 1988, not to brag. Um, I felt something. And it cleared me up. There was no question in my mind after that moment that there was something beyond this and that I'm there in some capacity, my higher self, and that I'd been there before, which obviously if I'm still there, I'm there, and that my grandfather had direct access to me and he answered this question. Remember, I was an atheist up till that moment. You don't know me, so I'm sure you've heard a lot of things from people that have found Jesus, people who found religion. This was like the non-religious version of that. But it was very much a epiphany. I could not deny it. I gave the journal to my wife. As a matter of fact, I didn't even read it. I forgot to tell you that. I gave the journal to my wife because I wasn't very good at reading my own writing. Still very dyslexic, was then, still am. Um, and she read it and she couldn't believe it. And she's a skeptic, not intentionally, but she was raised with a family that didn't believe in anything. And she was blown away too. And so, where I was 20 years ago, going back to the point, to where I am now, feels intentional. Is there a lesson in this? I don't know. It's mostly just my story, I guess. It's my show, so I'll cry if I want to. I'm not. I think the best things are the things that we don't see coming. I couldn't have predicted that moment. I was at my lowest belief hope and what came out of it a week later ken the guy i've talked about before had me over for an interview at youtube studios and for the first time i publicly spoke about my issues with depression and substance abuse and spoke truly from my heart which as an actor i would use mechanisms of my emotions but i never told people about who i was i mean you put a face out there I was even coached by actors to put a face out there. You know, put your best foot forward in this industry. You have to project an image, right? But when I went in for that interview, I felt my grandfather speaking to me saying, just be honest, and there's a reason for it. I don't know that in your life, something like that will happen. Maybe. But I do know all the things I prepared for 20 years ago, or tried to make happen in my life, didn't. But where I'm going right now feels pretty incredible. My underlying feeling is. A kind of joy knowing that I could actually help people. That I may have an insight. And I've definitely had the experience. I had a lot of pain in my life. Emotional and physical. And I think only through a person who has walked that path. Can you truly get. Raw insight. And light into the hearts of people who have felt those same things so i guess what you've helped me figure out right here talking to you is that this next decade will be incredible it'll be full of me being able to impart this to you and me exploring more of the human condition in a way that is relatable to as many people as i can and it all came out of pain isn't that interesting I always worry at the end of these podcasts what people are going to think. Not you people, I mean, I don't know you, but the people who I send this to, it's only only three people in my life get to hear this from me that I send to. And I value their opinions. Not to say I alter my my work based on their opinions because, my God, they wouldn't have told me to record this one. But this is real and this is me and this is for you thank you so much for listening. I gave you a part of me today and I hope in whatever crazy way is possible that it helps. I'm Jet Dunlap and uh, talk to you next time.